It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live, Psy Tech Talk, taking the God story to a geeky place. Here's Michelle. Hey, thank you, big voice guy. I am Michelle Mendoza, and I am so excited about geeking out on today's topic. It's a day of celebration, at least yesterday was. Did you know that yesterday was DNA Day? DNA Day is a day that commemorates the completion of the Human Genome Project back in 2003 and the discovery of DNA's double helix in 1953. So, yeah, DNA Day. Okay, big deal, Michelle. Don't tune out and say, oh, what, this is over my head. This is way geeky intellect stuff. No, what's exciting about this? There are some major news stories in DNA. And I am telling you, it will have ramifications in so many areas of your life. DNA printing, huge story. We'll touch on that today. The scientists believe that they have found all of the uh, pieces of the human genome. They pieced together 92% of DNA and the, the remaining 8% was mysterious. Now they've got it all. What does that mean to you? So many things that we can look forward to in the future. That is really exciting. What DNA now tells us about our past and the God story. Now that crazy interesting. And we're going to take it on with my guest who I'm so delighted to have with us, Daniel, Dr. Dan, Nathaniel Jeanson. He has a PhD in cell development biology from Harvard University. He uh, serves as a research biologist, author, and speaker. Uh, with Answers in Genesis, and he's written, his latest book is called Traced. We'll be talking about that book. We'll be talking about DNA, and we'll be talking with Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson. Dr. Jeanson, so glad to have you on today. Thanks. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Michelle. Oh, boy. Amazing stuff. Can we just touch on some of the latest news and happy DNA Day to you? Did you did you know as you're listening or watching or viewing that DNA Day was an actual thing? Did you did you celebrate? What, what do you do in your household, Dr. Jeanson? Do you have like DNA cake or? <laughs> we didn't do any sort of celebration. I did write an article last year to celebrate DNA Day, capitalize on the moment to try to Get, use the opportunity to talk about things that have come up, things that related to creation science. So I've done that. I just haven't made it a holiday yet for my own family. I, I really think you should. And, and how would you do that? Do you make, I don't know, just little, little designs and, and hang them from like little genomes and hang them from, from a genome tree? At any rate, um, some of the big news stories that the Human Genome Project feels that they're that they have every reason to celebrate as they piece together the remaining eight percent of the, this massive puzzle that DNA is. That's pretty exciting. And what are some of the ramifications of that? Yeah. So what they're doing is delving into the sequence of the hard to get at DNA. There's a lot of our DNA that's highly repetitive or it gets into the nitty gritty of the technical detail, but just in a nutshell, oftentimes what we'll do to sequence DNA is a little bit clumsy in a sense. You take a, you, you can get a cheek swab, let's say, if you take a genetic test, they'll typically extract chemically the stuff that is DNA because DNA is a chemical. And then they'll take 
the equivalent of a sledgehammer to it, bust it up into millions of pieces, maybe about 50 letters long. So you, you, our DNA is billions of letters long. So you bust it up in these tiny little pieces because then you can do it in mass. So that makes it cheaper, faster. You can get that sequence quickly. A lot less more expensive than it used to cost back in 2001. So you bust it up into these millions of pieces. You sequence the tiny little segments, the fragments, and then you electronically try to stitch it back together. Now, if you've got a section of DNA where it's the same sequence over and over again, and you've got a little segment that's the same length, and it's this sequence, well, do you put it here, here, here? Where do you put it on your DNA? That's what was one of the major limitations with the existing technology. There's been new technology that's developed where you can, just the machinery allows you to look at tens of thousands of letters at one time and can solve some of these technical challenges that you've run into. So some of that data has just been coming. I'm waiting to delve into it more. A lot of my research has been looking at the male inherited DNA, the Y chromosome. They've promised some of that forthcoming as well. Again, I don't know that it'll change a lot of understanding just because this type of DNA is so weird that to try to map out inheritance when there's all sorts of ways it can change. And, and you know, if we got into the weird stuff DNA does, it'd, be, it'd, it'd get crazy. I'm interested to see what it says because that's information that gets passed on. The body knows how to deal with it. The body knows how to copy it. The body knows how to read it. But whether we can make a lot of sense of it in terms of human history is an open question. And I'm, I don't know if I'm optimistic or pessimistic, but there's been a lot we still have yet to discover even the DNA we can read and, and, and analyze. It's astounding how complex DNA is. DNA is, what, a million times more efficient than our computer's hard drive. So whatever computer you have in front of you that we're utilizing for this interview today, or you're using as you're watching, listening, or viewing, the DNA that you hold in your body is, is, is seemingly, if I understand right, doctor, a million times more efficient. That is astounding that there's nearly six feet of DNA in, in a cell. And if when you look at a lot of the facts of DNA, I'm blown away at the complexity. Yes, it's, it's remarkable how many examples we have in biology where the engineering community is looking what's in nature and saying, we should copy that, or we should use this as inspiration for whatever design purpose. Well, biomimicry is same thing. Is just ripe in every area of development. Uh, there's the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun, and you sit back and realize in this technical age where we're we're inventing electric cars and artificial intelligence and so many new discoveries all the time, you still look at it and. In every case, it's based on something that was already in existence, biomimicry. Yes, it's incredible that more people don't recognize, okay, look, if the best minds on the planet are looking to nature for inspiration, surely that points to a master mind, a superior mind behind what's in nature. And I think we see some of this. It talks about this, Romans 1, the things of God are seen clearly in nature. And I'd say even the hardcore atheists and evolutionists recognize this. Richard Dawkins says biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So even he recognizes the obvious reality. He wants you to deny what your eyes see and say, no, it's not designed. It must have evolved. But even he has to concede, acknowledge it does look very well designed. That's inescapable. So let's get back to DNA and the 
complexity of DNA, the intricacy. And this is programming like next level. And we look like, if you want to get back to evolution, we look like chimpanzees trying to play with a cell phone as we're trying to dissect DNA and understand it. It's incredible to see how much has changed just in 10, 20 years. And one example that I think is especially relevant to this question of design and evolution is you look at the pronouncements that were made with the initial sequencing of DNA when they announced, I think it was 2001, Bill Clinton, Francis Collins, and and Craig Venter. Around that time, the evolutionary community said, oh, look, most of our DNA looks like junk. That was in the absence (laughs) of actual experimental testing. And so the community said, why don't we take a look at it? They started looking at just 1% of our DNA and said, let's see if there's if we can do some biochemical experiments. This is not a full-on exhaustive test of whether or not there's function. It's just an initial one. There was enough interest, enough interesting results that they got funding to do the entire DNA. So this was published 2012 then, so about 11 years after the initial announcement of the human DNA sequence. It was called the ENCODE project, and that was an acronym. And again, the, the point was to test for empirically test, experimentally test, see if there's evidence for human DNA function. What they announced in 2012 was, again, just using biochemistry. We're not testing it genetically, and there's all sorts of other things you could, in theory, try to do to explore function. They said there's evidence at least 80% of our DNA has some line of evidence, some sort of experiment behind it saying, yeah, it's doing something. Again, we're just scratching the surface. So to have that sort of massive reversal in the span of about a decade is a testament to our ignorance and our ongoing ignorance. So, you know, 2012 was just a decade ago, and there's even more we're uncovering now. So it's a testimony to our ignorance. It's a testimony to how much we've got it wrong and how much design there still is left to be discovered and how much of our own biology, our inheritance, and the diseases, of course, that arise genetically as well, we're still... It is a testament to our ignorance, but also a testament to our intelligence in being able to delve in, dig deeper, find out more, and in essence, find out that we there's so much we don't know. That's astounding. And an, another part of the God story, because it really does set us apart from all of the rest of creation that we can look beyond and even look deep into a cell, things that we didn't know existed uh, 150 years ago when we just made the assumption that we went from goo to you. Yes, and the whole idea of us having a common ancestor in the animal world that humans are simply this slightly more evolved primate, hardly indistinguishable from chimpanzees and gorillas and orangutans finds a strong rebuttal there. And in fact, when I first started in creation science professionally about 12 years ago, one of the early things I considered half joked about writing was a book titled Chimps Don't Build Jets, because there's basic kindergarten observations in a sense that point to there's a massive intelligent intelligence, uh, spiritual, emotional gap between us and our supposed closest evolutionary cousins, chimpanzees. They don't do these sorts of things. They don't do these sort of self-reflective historical observations. They aren't able to make these sorts of discoveries. They don't write symphonies. They don't compose music. They don't create these wonderful works of art. They don't make discoveries about DNA and create a holiday to celebrate it. So (laughs) there is a huge difference. And you could say then also a testimony to what the scripture says about who humans are created in the image of God, the only creatures that God created that have this designation. There's something special about us and the only creatures 
for whom God sent his son to die in their place and, and pay for their sins. So, Doctor, is there any naturalistic explanation for why we are so vastly different? We might be able to look into the genetic programming and uh, as we continue studying DNA, we may be able to say, oh, okay, look at how different humans are. But is there really any naturalistic explanation for how this could happen? why we are the way we are. I like to think of it uh, from the perspective of giving the evolutionists the most conservative assumptions they'd like. So it's it's popular among the evolutionary community to cite as evidence for evolution the supposed massive genetic similarity between us and the chimpanzee. So they'll say we're only 1% different, which sounds like we're just kissing oh, cousins. But... We could go into the evidence that I think suggests there's actually a, a massive genetic gap between us, hundreds of millions of letters. But I think it's fun to say, okay, I'll grant you, just for sake of argument, you can have 1% difference between us and chimpanzees. How are you going to get this massive intelligence gap bridged by just 1% of our DNA? So I feel like even if you give the evolutionists their favorite assumptions, you get a whole new problem of, is that enough to explain just how different humans and chimpanzees are? I don't think it is. And I think ultimately the whole exercise in a sense is misguided. That's what the evolutionists have to do as materialists. You have to explain everything that we see simply by strict naturalistic processes, but I don't see that you're ever going to be able to bridge that gap simply by trying to invoke genetics when I think ultimately what people will be forced to concede is there's a spiritual component that just doesn't go back to our DNA. It's we're made in the image um, of God. We have a soul. We have a spirit. We're not just like animals. There's something different about humans and that's going to live forever, as the scripture says. I think when you think of 1% and what a difference 1% makes, the human genome contains like 3 billion nucleotides and just under 20,000 protein coding genes, estimated like 1%. That's 1% of the genome's total length. That's in 1%. That's huge. So does 1% make a difference? Yeah, I think so. Before we delve into some of the aha moments of your book, one other big news story in DNA is DNA printing. That we're, What does that mean, really, when you think of, all right, we're just going to print out some DNA today. That's exciting. It has a lot of implications, but hard to wrap the average person's head around. And I have to punt on this one just because I've had my nose buried so much in human history and DNA. I haven't followed the DNA printing field, so I apologize. No, I don't no. have a better answer for you in advance, but that's something I haven't kept up with. No, that's perfectly okay. Do, do you, can you explain the, what, even what it is? I have to say, this is one of the first I've heard about it. I apologize. Uh, so I, because I don't know a lot about it, but uh, there are some news stories on DNA printing, being able to replicate, being able to look into DNA, see some of the problems that, that arise from genetic mutations, genetic diseases. There's so much in the future that we have to look forward to. But what I'm really excited about is the area of expertise you bring to your book, Traced. Now, this is where we're looking into big surprise secrets of what you call the new Rosetta Stone in, in DNA. Human DNA's big surprise secrets of the new Rosetta Stone. Why is DNA a Rosetta Stone? 
I think back to the original Rosetta Stone, which was a, a literal stone discovered in, in Egypt, I think about 35 miles north of Alexandria in the late 1700s. So at that time in history, the Egyptian ruins were being rediscovered and printed all around them was this ancient hieroglyphic language where the Egyptians themselves gave us their history and everyone was looking at it and couldn't make any sense of it. So here's this massive window into the past that's completely foggy because no one can read the language. And this Rosetta Stone was one of the keys to unlocking that mystery and opening the window so we could gaze into Egypt's past. Sure. And the Rosetta Stone had the ancient hieroglyphic writing. They had another form of Egyptian cursive called demotic, not demonic, but demotic, and then Greek. And so the world then in the late 1700s could read Greek and that was a process. And okay, we, we, we know this Greek word, we know this Greek name. Now we can find the equivalent in Egyptian. And it, it was really the one of the key stepping stones to gaining this great window into Egypt's past. And so we're calling this the new Rosetta Stone. What we've discovered is this generation by generation, DNA-based family tree for all humanity. And it gives us this massive new window into the past, not just for Egypt's history, but for the for the history of the entire planet. A an answer to a question that's long bothered me personally having never learned this in school, the story of the peoples of the civilization, Egyptians, Pharaoh, Egypt's pharaohs, their ruins, when their civilization started, when it fell, but you never learn in history class what happened to the people themselves. Are right. modern Egyptians oh, the right. descendants of the ancient Egyptians? Are modern Italians the descendants of the ancient Romans? And on you could go. This is the tool then that is able to answer those sorts of questions. And it's one of the reasons I never learned it in school, because we didn't have these sorts of answers wow. when I was in high school back in the 90s. This is a gigantic breakthrough in that sense. Oh, it's exciting. When you think of what we don't know about history, what happened to the Egyptians? What happened to the Mayans? And when we look at some of the history uh, of the past, civilizations from antiquity, where did we come from? And something that is very pertinent to the division that we have today, where race relations are concerned, La Raza and Black Lives Matter, and all of these areas that we're pinning ourselves against each other, you have found that races not only are not really races to in 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 an essence because we really are the same race the human race and we can know this now of course through science but races have actually changed yes it's and and, and this is a big <laughs> shock and i feel like there's a couple things of background that perhaps make the sure. impact less of a blow first of all <laughs> independent of genetics the history of human population growth has some spectacular ramifications for how closely related we are to one another. So creationists have talked about all of us going back to Noah just a few thousand years ago, which is true. The history of population growth makes this even more closer in time. So there's been a, the math behind this is the fact that there's been a, a gigantic leap in the global population size since 1400. So it's about a 20 fold change. Or if you flip that temporal perspective around, looking back in time, the population size in 1400, 600 years ago, is 95% smaller than it is today. And if you <clears throat> compare that to what we know about family trees, again, independent of genetics, what that means okay. is you and I, and anyone listening, has a 95% chance of having the same common ancestor just 600 years ago. So you start to think that through and say, okay, 
independent of race and ethnicity. There's all sorts of connections. There's ancestors I'm going to have in the very recent past. That's the same echo we can see in this DNA-based family tree. And the advantages, instead of just making generic statements, you can specifically trace each, so in this case, because I'm looking at male inherited DNA, each man's line back through history, every family line back through history. And you have one, one of the crazy examples of this. There are some Scandinavians pale-faced, blonde-haired people, probably like me. My hair is darker than that, but you think of your typical Scandinavian, that there's a percentage of them. If you look at their Y chromosomes, the men, and you trace it back in time, you go back perhaps a thousand years, and you'll find out their ancestors were not Vikings, per se. They were olive-skinned Arabs. And Arabs, of course, were in Europe, in Spain in particular, for several centuries due to the Muslim expansion through North Africa and into Spain. But it doesn't stop there. You say, okay, who did the Arab ancestors come from? Surely they've always been in the Middle East, right? No, you trace their ancestry back a little bit further to the BC era, and they go back to dark-skinned, I guess you could say Sudanese, the area of modern Sudan. We'd call them Nubians back in the day. And it doesn't stop there either. The Nubians themselves were one of the rulers, one of the pharaohs of ancient Egypt. So you've got Europeans who would go about their life thinking for all intents and purposes, yeah, we're just Vikings. But some of them go back to ancient Egypt itself, having gone through all these ethnic transformations. And that's just one example of the crazy history that emerges, the messy history that emerges when you trace it back through our DNA lines. And if all that's true, which I'm arguing it is, how can you even talk about a superior race, an inferior race, if the whole concept of race is this malleable category that can change from generation to generation and has changed from generation to generation. It blows all those racist arguments out of the water. It makes our divisions seem inane. It just is, it's almost embarrassing how stupid we are when you really look at it. What else can we know from DNA about language, about history, even about some of the stories that maybe we know from biblical history? Yes, there's been all sorts of other crazy implications of this research. One is I've got an increasing number of indigenous histories that mainstream science would likely dismiss as mythological or, ah, we just don't know what to do with this because it's oral history. I'm finding, again, an increasing number of cases where you can find the exact echo of this in our DNA. It's been one of the most satisfying aspects of this project to, in a sense, give people back their history. Uh, you, the examples from Africa, from Asia, there's Native American accounts that find these exact echo in the Y chromosome, this DNA-based history. In terms of biblical history, one of the most explosive surprises that has arisen out of this research is a very precise replica at the base of the tree, the very early stages of this DNA-based family tree that looks point for point like what's in Genesis 10. So make it practical, any male who takes a Y chromosome test, and, and you know, if you're female, we've done this from my mother's side, you, you find a brother, you find a cousin, some, something like that, to find that, that side of the family tree. Any male who takes a Y chromosome test, we can now trace that answers you back to specific sons of Noah, specific men. So I've taken a Y chromosome test. I can say my lineage goes back, yes, to France, but a thousand years ago, like many Western Europeans, about a thousand years ago to Central Asia, to people who probably looked more Chinese than they look like me. And they likely go back to some of the ancient Scythians and other Central Asian tribes and keep going back to sons of Noah. You go, I can trace that line back to a son of Joktan, descendant of Shem, so it's a different line than the Abrahamic line, but still Semitic in that sense through Shem. These are the sorts of things we can do with a high amount of precision for every people group, every male on this planet. That's astounding. It's really fascinating 
thinking that you can look back and see where we came from and how that ties in to a biblical account. And it's not, uh, doctor, it's not just in, in DNA, as you mentioned, these mythologies throughout the world, there are dozens upon dozens of people accounts of the ark that are completely separate, separated from by geological location uh, that you would think, where did this come from? That's not the only story, but we have common stories. And when you look at the Bible, we can look at the Bible as people of faith and take it as this is God's word. <clears throat> when you look, though, <clears throat> at archaeological confirmation, when you look at uh, the stories that people tell, when you look at uh, the astrological happenings that took place that align with scripture, and now when you look even deeper uh, through a microscope into the DNA, you see a something that paints a bigger picture. All of these things fit together. Yes, it's a remarkable testimony to the scripture's veracity. I would say this recent research in particular on DNA is one of the strongest arguments we have in print. Excuse me. <coughs> Still getting over my sinus infection. One of the strongest arguments we have in print for the recent origin of humanity. You've got the echo of Genesis 10 at the base of the tree. <coughs> Tickle my throat. You also have stamped all throughout our DNA the history of civilization as we know it. And this should only be true if you have the scriptural anthropology. So from an evolutionary perspective, human history goes back, at least the, the history of anatomically modern humans, goes back hundreds of thousands of years. And what we would call the history of civilization is just the very tail end, the last 5,000 years in evolutionary time, of a much longer narrative. And so you can first ask the question, if you're an evolutionist, is it even worth trying to look for the genetic echo of the history of civilization? And practically, it's in, the, if, again, if you stretch out this family tree over, over this vast period of time, it's in the, in theory, in the part of the tree where there's a, a high amount of statistical noise. So it may not even be possible from an evolutionary perspective to find the stamp of the history of civilization. Very different expectation from a scriptural perspective. All pre-flood civilizations would have been destroyed in the flood. And so Egypt, Sumer, Persia, all these are post-flood civilizations, and, and the echoes of these civilizations should be all throughout our DNA, and that's essentially what this book is arguing. If it, One long argument, a book-length argument saying all that history is there, and it's there only because you have the Young Earth timescale, which the fact that all this comes together is an argument, again, for the veracity of the anthropology that's laid out in Scripture. Uh, looking back at biblical accounts that just don't make sense, have caused many an eye to roll and to say, okay, maybe there's some history to the Bible, but there's also some crazy, ridiculous things. We, well, Do you think we'll be able to, as we go forward in science, look back at more of the biblical accounts and say, whoa, suddenly that makes sense. Things like the Tower of Babel or the, and, and many others, but I, I can even just stop there. Do you think we'll make progress and say, okay, these things do make sense? Because I do see that there are things that we've looked at and said, oh, that doesn't make sense. The earth is a sphere. At one time when we believed the earth was flat, look, the Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. Yes, and I'd say even this research is an advance from what I've been doing five, ten years ago. 
my initial research forays were into the data we had at the time, which was the female inherited DNA, the mitochondrial DNA. I think we've got some clear echoes of 6,000 years of history plus of the flood. And I was trying to take it further, but that for reasons unknown, there's just a lot of statistical noise and that type of DNA. This male inherited DNA, again, for reasons unknown, has a lot less statistical noise. We can be much more precise so that I can count off generation by generation. Shem, his son, Arfaxa, down through the tree to Jockton and his sons and the other side, you know, Peleg, all these names. Now you can begin to see the echo of this. You can see the genealogical echo of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, perhaps even some of the tribes of Israel, one or two of the tribes of Israel. My guess is we'll see more as we dig into the 99% of men who have yet to get a, a Y chromosome sequence. We'll see the echo of that. So the fact that we have this new tool, we already see some very clear generation by generation precise echoes of some of the most ancient biblical anthropology gives me confidence that as, as the research progresses, as we gain more and more information, even more of these details scripturally will, will emerge, even for me personally, be able to say, wow, I can see in this tree going back to this specific son of Noah. That's my ancestor. That's I feel like it's almost like being able to go to the, the land of Israel and say, okay, I'm walking where Jesus walked. I'm walking where the nation of Israel was. Uh-huh. It makes it all the more organic and it's really encouraging and refreshing. It's very exciting. The more we know, the more it reveals about the God story. And to me, that is, it's, it has such implications. It's very difficult anymore to find complete atheists in science. You really have to fight hard to say there is, to not just be agnostic, which I, I find atheism to be intellectually dishonest, because if you can't know that there's a God, how can you know that there isn't? It just doesn't quite make sense. Agnosticism makes a lot more sense to say, I just don't know. I don't think there is, but I just don't know. But it becomes harder and harder the more, the farther we go down this scientific trail. Yes. And, and again, to me, it's an echo of what Paul wrote through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans 1. The things of God are clearly seen. People are without excuse because of the testimony that we see in nature. And it's a echo of that and what Richard Dawkins is saying about the obvious nature of design. What's remarkable to me is the statistics of the professional scientific community, at least 60% of the scientific community, this is Pew surveys and such of, I think, membership in the AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science, 60% of them cannot even say they believe in God, maybe it's some sort of vague spiritual higher power, a, a good chunk of them, no God at all. And... Uh, That's very different, of course, from the general populace. So Romans 1 suggests that everyone can see that God exists, but they make a conscious decision to say, no, I'm going to suppress that evidence. And some of these statistics, I think, in a sense, echo of that. I I think of a uh, a story one of my colleagues told Dave Menton. He worked, uh, he's now passed, but he worked for 33 years in Washington University School of Medicine teaching medical students. And he, he was, so he was a PhD. And he said he would ask his colleagues Christian, first he'd ask his Christian friends if there was ever a point at which they would doubt their faith. And of course, many would say, yeah, I've had times of strong faith, times of weak faith, times which I was walking with the Lord closely and times at which I've doubted. He did also ask the same question of his unbelieving colleagues and say, was there ever a time, do you ever lay awake at night and wonder, could I be wrong? Maybe I'm wrong in my agnosticism or atheism. He said, and to a man, all of them said no, which to me is also a, a, I think, an indirect confirmation that this is a conscious decision. How do you maintain that sort of thing and say, no, there isn't, you have to decide. You have to make that decision every day. Well, because gonna, even as I'm a Christian, to be possible. as a Christian, you got to be honest and say, are there times where you lie awake at night and say, 
God, are you up there? Is this real? And then you walk through the evidence of your life, the continuity of scripture, the evidence in science, and you go, yeah. And it has implications everywhere that are uncomfortable. We are talking about, you were talking about following the male inherited DNA. That gets into the messy situation of people talking about gender fluidity and you look at DNA, how does that marry with that current worldview? I've been shocked by the number of my colleagues who have thrown their credibility and basic scientific credentials into the wind on this specific issue. So let's say things that are politically incorrect, but biologically cut and dry. Males are XY, females are XX. There's no other way around it that's clear. And so for professionals who've dedicated their lives to trying to uncover the truth, because that's really what science is, it may be have, have its own weaknesses in trying to uncover the truth, but that's the goal. We want to know, does this drug cure disease? And we need to know the truth to be able to actually make a difference in the world. Now, sure, you, you can, we can have all the discussion about financial incentives and mixed motives, and these sorts of things. But ultimately, I feel like, and I, and I think my colleagues would say this, I go in, they go into science, I go into science because we want to understand the world better. We want to understand, we, we don't want to invent a fantasy and live in that. We, we do science because it's a method to uncover the way the world works and then to use it for our own ends, to improve it, to come up with technology. We're using it right now, thanks to science. And then to say, forget it because of political convenience or political pressure. That's, I, I don't, it, it, it's just crazy to me. And there's, there's parallels to this in the former Soviet Union. Lysenko is the guy's name where they, in the 1950s, I think they're pushing some weird, totally foreign concept of genetics because the political party said so. I thought mm-hmm. it, it's scary to think we're, we're in the 1950s USSR era. Well, not just that, think of the Nazi. what we do scientifically. The Nazi era that uh, was trying to use science to say that Jews were subhuman. And that's where you need to let science challenge itself. You have to have conversation. Otherwise, you go down a dangerous road. When your worldview is that far off, when your worldview is off and it goes unchallenged, we have seen through history what happens. So I don't have a problem with someone saying, what if there is gender fluidity? Fine, let's talk about it. But in a time where you start seeing, nope, you aren't allowed to talk about it. You're shut down, you're shouted down, you're canceled. That's where it becomes dangerous with any worldview. Even God says, test me, try me, prove me. Come, let us reason together. If God's not afraid of the challenge, who the heck are we to be afraid of a challenge? My final question to you, Dr. Jameson, we we talked about sometimes laying awake at night and wondering, yeah, God, are you really there? But I want to know about the times where you're in your studies, you're looking through DNA, you're researching, and you just stop and nearly need to fall on your knees because you see something so astounding that it's as if God is speaking directly to you through science. Has that happened? I'd say uh, a couple things come to mind is one is I am in a sense forced to spend most of my days constantly questioning myself. Every good scientist is supposed to be, every research scientist at least, is supposed to be their own worst critic <laughs> because at the end of the day, again, you're, ideally and, and, and philosophically, what every scientist should be doing is pursuing the truth. And it's this process of doing experiments and what, how do you evaluate it? And let's test more hypotheses. Let's keep questioning it. And, and, and where you find contradictions, that's often the key to 
uncovering the way the world really works. So you're, you're constantly questioning yourself. Okay, I think this fits. This seems to fit scripture, but does it really? And did I interpret this correctly? So there's a, there's much of my day that's consumed with that. But then when I can say, okay, I think I can breathe a sigh of relief. This seems to be valid. So again, this is, I guess, my own scientific thought process for better or for worse. To be able to, like I said earlier, to be able to sit back and say, oh, wow, this is my line. And we can trace it back to Shem. And these are my ancestors. This is really wild. And again, the Bible is God's word. It's a book. It's written to be taken at its word. The Bible requires faith. God is pleased by faith and displeased by unbelief and, and lack of faith. That's a common theme throughout scripture. So there still is that element to it. And really everyone has to have faith of some kind. Every scientist has to have faith because you're always, science is sticking your neck out in a hypothesis and then testing with an experiment. So there's always, an, you have to have some level of confidence, faith in a particular hypothesis to, to be able to get funding and, and, and the courage to then go explore it. So it's not like it's there's science versus faith. Everyone has faith of some sort, but just to be able to go back and say, okay, this, this, this fits, it, it, it makes it come alive in a new way. Thinking again to what people have, I've never been to Israel, but what people have said when they walk the land of Israel and say, it just, it brings the scripture to life in a new mm-hmm. way that I never anticipated. Uh-huh. It's that element that I feel has been the biggest in this particular research for me to say, okay, here's this list of names. And yeah. that guy right there is a great, 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 however many greats <laughs> grandfather, because here's the line that traces to him. It, it, that's what brings it alive and it brings it close, I guess. In yes. sense. Now you have this organic genealogical connection. You are related to me. That's what I feel like is, is the biggest consequence for me personally. So it's like science is bringing the Bible to life. You, know, you, you walk through the Holy Lands and, oh, wow, it's bringing the Bible to life. But that's what I love about doing this particular show is watching science bring God's word to life. The God story comes alive and it makes sense. And that worldview, wherever you pluck it out, whether it's in DNA sequencing and tracing human DNA, or whether it's looking into the issues of the day, that worldview continues to make sense. And it's the only worldview that stands the scrutiny of everywhere you can pick it up and pl- and put it into. That's what's exciting to me. I've had so much fun learning from you today. And once again, encourage you to pick up the book Traced. Human DNA's big surprise. You can get a link at mymichellelive.com. Our guest today, Dr. Nathaniel Jeanson. Don't be a stranger. I, I'd love for you to come back. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much, Michelle. And you, don't forget to like us, share us. It makes a big difference because the world needs to know the God story. And as it continues to get shut down here or there, the more we get the word out with shows like this and others, you do your part by just a little like, a little share, maybe a little comment. That continues to grow in algorithms. More people hear the God story and it makes a difference. Thanks again for being part of the show today. More SciTech Talk at MyMichelleLive.com.